Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back to History for the Curious, the podcast. Thank you for joining us again, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you. We've had fantastic feedback from, we've had listeners all over the world. We've even tracked some down to India, believe it or not. I didn't know you had fans there. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. (laughs) Today's podcast is episode three out of four in scandals in Anglo Jewry. Now today, the title is The Renegade. Seemingly a story about betrayal, I would assume. Uh, Yes, but a betrayal of a people and a history rather than of individuals. Um, Everyone in England has heard of Benjamin Disraeli, who became prime minister twice, um, born a Jew in 1804. But fewer people have heard of his father, Isaac Disraeli, born 40 years earlier. And we will discuss both, but the renegade was Isaac Disraeli. So I'm assuming he's a man of prominence, a person of influence. Well, he was a writer of note in his time. And for his five-volume work on Charles I, he was awarded a doctorate by Oxford University, which was unusual for a Jew back then. During his lifetime, probably around 20,000 Jews living in England, and they were politically disadvantaged. They couldn't become members of parliament of either house. But their influence was increasing, and the more open forms of anti-Semitism were decreasing because governments and aristocrats were continually borrowing money from them, so they start to have a place in society. But the general attitude was that even though you didn't mind occasionally running into a Jew in town, you certainly didn't want them rubbing shoulders with Christians. So their status was uh, tolerated which admittedly is far more than during the Renaissance period or even the period of the Enlightenment, but they're not fully accepted. And so for some Jews, it became a time to loosen their allegiance to Judaism because they felt it uh, held them back from entering into wider Christian society. And in fact, there was a quote from the Ashkenazi chief rabbi, Rabbi Herschel, in 1790, who said, we want to be like them, dress as they dress, talk as they talk, and want to make everybody forget that we are Jews. Quite the opposite of the Jews in Egypt. Right, very much so, yes. The only thing is that being English, the English Jews were still somewhat affiliated and reluctant to completely cut ties with the community. And uh, this was, of course, before the reform movement existed in in England. This Disraeli, he was one of these English Jews, presumably. Was he Sfadi, Ashkenazi? I'm trying to figure out his name. So Isaac Disraeli's father was Italian and married after arriving in England in 1748. Isaac is an only child. His father is active in the Jewish community and a generous contributor to communal requests and affiliated strongly to Orthodox Judaism. 1748 was a time many Jews were 
immigrating from Italy or? Not in particular, uh, but he came from actually a very small place called Cento, uh, whose population never really made it over 250. And they were in the rope making business. He worked for the Admiralty and therefore he had links to England. So mm. it just made the, uh, the move possible. So that's the father. Isaac Disraeli's mother, on the other hand, saw herself as being socially rejected by her Christian neighbors and was ashamed of her Jewish ancestry. And when she dies, she is buried in a Christian cemetery, which clearly makes for a rather messy or contradictory upbringing. Uh, this isn't just a question of which school to send your kid to. Now, Isaac this only child is given a bris and there's still a record at uh, Bevis Marks, but seems to have received very little Jewish education, which we assumedly put down to his mother. And as an adult, he is not interested in his Jewish ancestry. He basically couldn't even read Hebrew, and he's not a fan of Judaism. In 1794, he wrote that the Jews have no men of genius or talents. Ten centuries have not produced ten great men. And no surprises, but Moses Mendelssohn had a great influence on him. But the non-Jews thought highly of him. And for some, that's where life starts and ends. So there's a newspaper review that I have here. He was written about in the following terms. Uh, Isaac Disraeli is truly a philosopher, and although a descendant of Israel, is not disgraced by any vulgar superstitions. So in his mind, he'd made it to the um, top of the greasy pole, uh, which is a term his son would famously hmm. coin many years later. Now, he gets married. His son, Benjamin, is also circumcised and had some level of Jewish instruction through the synagogue where Isaac Disraeli remains a nominal member, but there's no observance of Judaism in Disraeli's home. It seems quite typical, Isaac Disraeli's life, with what would have been paralleled by other wealthy assimilated Jews in London at the same time. Perhaps the differences would be the extent to which his literary career immersed him deeply in the non-Jewish world, and also the extent to which he attacked the orthodox Jewish world that he was born into. A couple of other quotes. He describes the Talmud as much rambling and puerile tales. He advises that the Talmud be removed to be seen as a curiosity and not as a manual of education. He blames the rabbis for having kept the national genius stationary. And rabbinic Judaism, with its unyielding laws and fettering, in other words, restraining ceremonies, he writes, cuts off the Jews from the great family of mankind, which pretty much says it all. It, it's a real attack, and he puts it in writing. So he's not just indifferent to Judaism, but antagonistic, and effectively almost a self-hating Jew. And this doesn't sound like reform. This sounds almost anti-Semitic. Well, it was not necessarily um, untypical in certain ways of people who were very much part of non-Jewish society 
and had little knowledge of their own background. But things change with the sort of the last ingredient and that really makes it all explode. And it came as a surprise. In October 1813, he receives a letter that he has been elected a Parnas, a synagogue warden at the Bevismark Synagogue. That wasn't around Purim time. No, no. It was a very serious summons, as we will see. A Disraeli refused to serve, which, you know, you can't fault him for. He had no real connection to the synagogue. But he said he would stay on as a member. The synagogue administration behave in a very uncompromising, you could really even call it stupid, manner. They find Disraeli. They summons him. He returns the summons. But, but I, d- I don't understand. What were they thinking, electing a complete non-believer to a position in a shul? Okay, right, to explain. The shul lay leadership was arranged along similar lines to the parishes of the Church of England at the time, where it was quite common to elect church wardens from the wealthy, who would either serve or pay a fine to get out of it, which is a novel way of raising funds without needing matched funds in the 36-hour campaign. (laughs) So, for instance, synagogue records show that Isaac was not the only one to turn down the shawl And in that year alone, three other members refused office. Presumably, they paid their fine. And as a side note, the Chacham, Rabbi Fahl Meldola, did not take any part in this dispute. The Mahmud saw it as a simple matter of synagogue administration and uh, fundraising, I guess. So uh, two months later, December 1813, He writes to them that he can't be part of their public worship, uh, to quote, uh, to involve his life in duties always repulsive to his feelings. He's not one to mince his words. Now, neither party were prepared to give way. The Mahmud continues to summons Isaac to attend meetings or pay fines. He carries on refusing. And this goes on for three years. And he's very aggrieved. And in December 1816, what changes for him is that his father dies. Four months later, he's now no longer restrained by fear of giving offence to his father. He writes to the shawl that he's resigning his membership and he makes a request that his name be erased from the list of members and adds um, as a uh, parting shot that your existing laws were adapted by fugitives and are as foreign to us as the language in which they are written. Well, that sounds all quite understandable, surely. Agreed, uh, but it doesn't end there, because he feels now, this is 1817, that his children would gain many advantages by becoming members of the Church of England. And over the next few years, will baptise them. On July 31st, he baptises Benjamin, who had been having lessons in the synagogue for his bar mitzvah, which was going to take place six months later. Now, Isaac himself doesn't become a Christian formally, hence uh, I have named him as a renegade rather than an apostate, although when he dies, he is buried next to his wife in Bradenham Church. And when the first English Reformed synagogue 
is opened in London in 1842. Isaac Disraeli turns up, he's now 81 years old, and he reportedly says that, you know, had such a synagogue been around some years earlier, he and his family would have continued to profess Judaism to this day, which puts his Judaism pretty much into perspective. And puts reform into perspective. Yes, I mean, in other words, what they were doing at the time, mm. It's uh, all of these things have changed over the uh, last almost two centuries, but yes, very much so. And so, all in all, he is what you might call a disappointing Jew. He's well-read, he's intelligent, he's very ignorant about his own faith and history, yet still arrogantly prejudiced against it, against something he has no real knowledge of. And, and being an educated individual, his narrow-mindedness is very um, disappointing. It's a bit like uh, Henry Kissinger who is another complete renegade, except that since he is still alive, he could theoretically still do truva, hmm. although it would be a long journey, so we can't create that podcast yet. <laughs> what was the effect on Disraeli Jr.? Okay, so you take a Jew, you convert him, and then he becomes prime minister at a time when Britain still rules the waves. So, yes, what are his views of Jews, of Judaism, of uh, Jewish rights? Uh, and uh, I guess did being born Jewish play a role in his political leadership. So it, it's complex. Um, I'm not going to be able to answer it in this podcast, but I will perhaps try and sketch out an, an overview. Disraeli had to fight his way into the political arena to become successful politically in Christian England. You know, he's not part of the old boys club. And he has to overcome his Jewish origins to the outside world. He was a Jew. You know, a spritz of water ain't going to make any difference. Well, didn't his father's power and influence help his career path? It might have given him certain introductions into society. But politics, especially at the time, uh, was very much a, a Christian game. And he becomes a conservative, perhaps a Tory MP in 1837. And one of the issues being debated was whether to allow Jews to become members of parliament while still professing Judaism. But his whole party is opposed to it, so he votes against the bill. And for the next 10 years, Disraeli doesn't really get involved in the controversy. But in 1847, things change. Lionel Rothschild is elected to Parliament as a Jew. But of course, he can't take his seat in Parliament because he won't take the oath to be bound by the Church of England. And actually, this would happen four times over the next decade. He would come to Parliament. He would take an oath of loyalty, but leave out the bit about Christianity and be forced to leave the house and he would sort of sigh and walk away and in 1847 Disraeli delivers his famous and passionate speech in favor of Jewish emancipation which is still opposed by most of his party but he says things like the life and property of England are protected by the laws of Sinai. But was this all pressure from Lionel de Rothschild? Perhaps, or perhaps he now felt more secure in his political position because his party needed him. Mm. But here's the thing. Disraeli advocated Jewish emancipation not on Jewish grounds, but from a Christian standpoint. 
he didn't want to exclude those who are of the religion of which my saviour was born into. <laughs> it's a bit uh, twisted. Well, it's uh, convoluted, mm. perhaps. William Fraser wrote that the professed creed of Disraeli was that he believed in the Calvary as well as in Sinai, but this irritated Christians and Jews alike. He was batting for both teams. That's how they saw it. Mm. Now, the party splits over the vote, but they still needed him. They needed his talents. They needed his oratorial skills. So he remains and grows in his position in Parliament. And then there's his stand on Zionism. Lord Derby, who was, I guess you could call him his boss, writes in his own diary in 1852, and that diary is only published in, in 1978, he writes that on one occasion, Disraeli talked to me with great earnestness on the subject of restoring the Jews to their land. The country, Disraeli said, has ample natural capabilities, and all it wanted was labor. The ownership could be bought from Turkey, from the Ottoman Empire. Money would be forthcoming, the Rothschilds leading Hebrew capitalists, they would all help. But Darby wrote that in the succeeding four years, I have heard of no practical step taken by Disraeli in the matter. So he's unresolved in that matter as well. And then there's a third area, his involvement or lack of in the struggle for the rights of Jews in Romania which was the location at the time, in the 1870s, of many Jewish pogroms and open discrimination. It seems to have been quite limited, his involvement. From 1870, it was a priority for Jewish leaders and organizations in Western Europe and in the USA. Yet, apparently, none of them approached Disraeli. There is a 350 page account or book, which covers some of those years, most of those years in the 1870s. And it includes many letters between Jewish organizations and the Foreign Office, and they don't mention Disraeli. Now, eventually the issue is brought up in the conference in Berlin, which is a conference of all the European powers, and a guarantee was issued for the rights of minorities in Romania, although it must be said it was honoured primarily in the breach. But and Dis that happened in Berlin, ironically. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, which at the time was uh, a place that was emancipating its Jews. Mm. But Disraeli wasn't involved um, in these clauses. He can't be seen as responsible for having inserted them into the treaty. Nevertheless, and this is where it plays back against Disraeli, there is an Irish MP by the name of O'Connor who wrote a very hostile biography of Disraeli, which turned out to be very popular. And he wrote, and I quote, The day when Israeli returned from Berlin represented the triumph, not of England, not of English policy. It was the triumph of Judea, a Jewish policy, a Jew. So Disraeli is blamed for helping minority rights because some of the beneficiaries are Jews. And when he dies in April 1881, the Times writes, Few leaders of parties have been the object of so much denunciation, and few, in the face of many and great obstacles, 
so steadily advanced to a commanding place in the state. Under him, England once more became a potent factor in Europe. So it would be true to say that his baptism does lead to his becoming prime minister, but his father's actions, Isaac Disraeli, were a slap in the face to his fellow Jews and to all of his own ancestors who struggled and retained their religion for thousands of years rather than taking the easy route, which many of them presumably could have done or were offered, but which Isaac Disraeli throws away for a mess of pottage. And the ultimate irony, of course, is that in the eyes of many non-Jews, his son, Benjamin Disraeli, remains as much a Jew as he would have been prior to any baptism. Hmm. You can't escape. Nope, absolutely <laughs> not. It's a, a destiny. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. That was episode three out of four in Scandals in Anglo Jury. Please join us next week for the final episode of this series. Thank you very much for joining us. And please feel free to leave us feedback and any comments or suggestions at podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you. <laughs>